Uh, Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 42 as we uh, continue in our series in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 42. Uh, It is our practice here at Grace Covenant to stand, excuse me, to stand when we read God's Word. Uh, If you are able, let me ask that you do that now. Let's stand together. I'll read only through verse 17. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, they said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And and Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, my servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. And let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit. uh, Not just that you would inform us by these words, but that you would transform us. Uh, We long not to walk out just knowing more, uh, but knowing You better, loving You more, and being more conformed into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Most of you, I trust, uh, will do everything in your power to avoid the feeling of guilt. Uh, I assume that most of you will do whatever you can to avoid, to get rid of, to hide from, to stay away from uh, the feeling of uh, guilt in your life. We hate that feeling. We hate that, that weight uh, on ourselves. We hate that sense of, of bearing a, a burden of feeling guilty of being 
guilty. <clears throat> and so we, in a number of ways, look for ways to, to get rid of uh, that sense of guilt in our lives. But in this passage, guilt is actually a useful tool. In your life, guilt is actually a, a useful tool for uh, not just making you feel oppressed and difficult, uh, but for actually bringing you back to God Himself. Our conscience uh, to steal from Andrew Fuller is like a vice regent in our hearts, uh, a keeper, a prophet, examiner, a judge, like a lower heaven. In the sense that, that the, your conscience in you will examine uh, your guilt. It will judge and determine whether your guilt, like a lower heaven, uh, also it sometimes is your adversary, your informer, your accuser, your witness, like an upper hell. Joseph, I mean, Jacob sins. Ten of his sons to Egypt to buy grain. There's a famine everywhere where we're reminded all over again of, of Matthew 5.45 that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And, and there's a part of me that kind of wants to go, why would you do that? Why would you send rain on the just and unjust? Really the question is, why would you allow the famine in Canaan why would you allow the famine where God's people are? Seems to me like you would dump the famine on Egypt. That's fine. They're all worshiping pagan gods anyway. Why wouldn't you protect Canaan? And the reality is that, that God is putting together, He's orchestrating events, accomplishing His purposes and His plans just as He wants. And so Jacob sends ten sons down to Egypt to buy food. Uh, he, he, he's learned, he's discovered that Egypt has been storing up food. They've got food for sale and you can go down there and buy some. And so he looks at his sons and said, why are you, why are you sitting around the house? What are you doing? Why do I have to tell you to get up and go down to Egypt and buy food? Why, don't that, why doesn't that just sort of just happen? Why don't you just kind of go, oh, there's food. We should go, probably go get some. You, you recall Pharaoh had had a dream that Joseph interpreted Seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And we're now into those years of famine. And Jacob sends ten of his sons. He keeps Benjamin, uh, who is Joseph's full brother, the second born of his favorite wife, Rachel. The others travel down to Egypt. And we're told twice, verses 7 and 8, that Joseph recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. It's been 20 years, at least. Joseph was 17-ish the last time they saw him. He's 37-ish now, maybe a, a little later. We're into the famine years. It's, it's been at least 20 years. People change and Joseph knows exactly who they are. They have no idea who he is. This past Monday night, I went to uh, Prosperity ARP up in Taft, Tennessee, because my New Testament professor was preaching a Bible conference there. And um, I decided I had to go see him. Uh, oddly enough, he was preaching on Leviticus, my New Testament professor. 
Um, and so Monday night I went, I walked in just as kind of they were starting. And afterwards he was standing there shaking hands with people. And I kind of walked over and stood beside him. And he kind of, out of the corner of his eye, looked over and sticks a hand out and says, And what's your name, sir? I said, Jeff Hooker. He hit me, laughed, couldn't believe he didn't recognize me. I, of course, was disappointed I didn't look 30 any longer. Because I'm pretty sure it's been about 17, 18 years since I last saw Professor Kara. He looked different, but not different enough. You could have picked him out of a crowd anywhere. I knew exactly who he was. I apparently had changed enough that it didn't jog his memory. Disappointing. Joseph would have been clean-shaven, dressed like an Egyptian, probably white and gold, and, and would have looked like an Egyptian. And we're told later he's actually speaking hieroglyphics. He's speaking Egyptian. Um, thank you. Uh, he, he's not speaking. You know, they're speaking Hebrew. He's not. We're told later that there was a, an interpreter in verse 23. And so they're using an interpreter. So they assume this is an Egyptian. He looks and talks like one of them. They have no idea who he is. And as they come into his presence, notice they bow before Joseph. If you've been at Grace Covenant long enough, that should sound familiar, familiar to you. Uh, if you've read Genesis recently, it should sound familiar to you. You have to imagine that at that moment, as these ten brothers bowed to Joseph, thinking they're just bowing to, to you know, the vice president of Egypt, right? I mean, he's the, the governor of the land. He's the, the Pharaoh's sort of man in terms of organizing uh, all of the sale of the crops they've been storing up for the last seven years, it would have troubled them to bow to this foreign God leader like this anyway. But you have to imagine in that moment, the Bible doesn't tell us this. I think this is reasonable. Joseph got goosebumps when his brothers bowed down to him. You're going, well, wait, why would that be the case? Turn back to Genesis chapter 37. And I'm going to ask you to keep a finger here because we're going to flip back and forth a little bit between these two chapters. Back in Genesis 37, Joseph is introduced. And there, Joseph has dreams. He has two dreams. And in those dreams, his family is bowing down before him. Look at verse of Genesis 37. Joseph had a dream when he told it to his brothers. They hated him even more. They already hated him. He was the favorite son and had this special coat and they didn't like him already. And he had this dream and he said, you know, I'm going to go tell these brothers that, that already don't like me. And here's the dream. Behold, verse 7, uh, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. Your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, you don't have to have some special psychiatric psychology degree to figure out what that means. They got angry. 
They were indignant. You mean, you really think that we are going to bow down to you, little brother? And then there was a, a second dream uh, in which he dreamed, uh, verse 9, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. The sun, the moon, the, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now it's his parents as well. And so as Joseph is, I don't know, in his office at Pharaoh's house, I don't know, next to the silos where they've stored all the grain, his brothers come in to buy grain and they bow down to him and he in that moment gets chills. But I want you to notice something. Those dreams aren't fulfilled in this chapter. This is just ten brothers. This isn't all eleven. There's one missing. It's a, a partial fulfillment of those dreams, but it's not a complete fulfillment of them. And so Joseph has to keep up the appearance of being an Egyptian. He keeps up that appearance in part because he wants to make sure that the rest of his family is okay, that Benjamin really is at home with his dad, just as the brothers said he was. Is he really okay? Is he really safe? I want to know what his condition is. And so he keeps up the appearance of being an Egyptian. But he also does it to test his brothers. And if you'll keep a finger there in Genesis 37, uh, you'll watch the parallel between his tests and his experience from back in chapter 37. Notice in chapter 42, he accuses them, first of all, of being spies. And, and whatever the brothers say in defense, no, we're not spies, we're honest men. Joseph goes, I know that's not true. You can claim to be honest men, but I know that's not true. No, we're not spies. We've never been spies. We've never, you know, we're not here to seek out the nakedness of the land. We're not here to see where the dangers are, where the exposed parts are, where we can invade this place and take over all of your grain. That's not at all what we're doing. And no matter what they say, he keeps pushing back your spies, your spies. But look back at Genesis 37. Joseph, verse 2, Joseph was 17 years old. He was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, if you were here then, you remember that, that it's unclear. Is the report bad in the sense that it's false, that Joseph was making something up? Or is it a report about bad stuff they were doing? That seems to be the most likely option. But it's a report about bad things that his brother's were doing. In fact, later in chapter 37, Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers. You get the sense Joseph was sort of acting like a spy to his brothers. And now he turns around and accuses them of being spies themselves. And then as a, another test... Joseph verses 15 to 17, chapter 42, he throws them into prison. And he leaves them there for three days. 
can you imagine the fights? I mean, I just can't fathom that those ten brothers thrown into prison for three days had um, all pleasant conversations while they were in prison. They had to be... They were blaming each other. I mean, I just can't... I just have to imagine that there was, this is your fault, if you had only, if you hadn't. There, There had to be a lot of arguing and pushing and shoving and sort of disputing as long as they were in prison together. Now, the conversation in verses... 21 and 22 when when Joseph gets them out. It's civil. But there had to be arguments as long as they were in prison pointing the finger at each other. Besides, three days in prison will make you think. So I'm told. I I guess I don't actually know. I would imagine... That three days in prison would give you plenty of time to remember what you've done to that 11th brother. What you did to Joseph 20 years ago. How you treated him when he was a a teenager. You were going to kill him. You ended up selling him as a, a slave, a servant to... Uh, the slave traders, the Ishmaelites, as they went by. It gives you time to recall all the things for which you are guilty. And that guilt had to start weighing on their shoulders. Initially, he said, send one, I'll keep the rest. He changes it when he gets them out of prison. He says, all of you go and one will stay. Joseph was committed to making sure that Benjamin was safe. He wanted to know that Benjamin was okay. Joseph had been mistreated. Perhaps the other son of Rachel, the favorite wife, the new favorite son, perhaps he too has been mistreated. They got rid of me. How do I know they didn't get rid of him? And so you notice Joseph keeps one behind. It's a test. Will they forsake this one like they forsook me? Will they turn their backs on Reuben? I'm going to keep Reuben and keep him here in prison and send the other nine back to get Benjamin and my father. Will they remember him? Will they say, hey, look, besides, he puts their money back in their sacks. I didn't read this far, but they pay for the food. And then Joseph secretly has the money put back in their backpacks so that when they get home, they unpack their backpacks. And lo and behold, the money that was supposed to be to pay for grain is still there. He was sold as a slave. Would they turn around and do the same to Reuben? Would they treat another brother the same way they treated me? It's a test for these brothers. And and you see why um, he kept Reuben. Reuben, we learn, um, Joseph didn't know this. We knew this already from chapter 37. But Joseph learns here in chapter 42 that Reuben had actually 
stood up for him when the others wanted to kill him. Reuben didn't, didn't want him killed. He wanted, was looking for a way to protect him. And actually we're told in chapter 37 that Reuben was going to take him back home to dad safe and sound. That's why Joseph cries. They've admitted their guilt right here in front of me. They've admitted that they had turned their backs on me. Oh, and it turns out one of them, Reuben, had actually argued for his safety, verses 22 and 23. So Reuben stays behind and the others go back home. Would they remember? Would they care? Would they just as gladly sell Reuben for a buck as they did Joseph? It's all a test. Joseph's setting them up. He's testing their, his brothers to see if they are different. To see if they have changed in these 20 years. But I want you to watch as, as the chapter unfolds. You can watch their consciences actually slowly get pricked. Their hearts actually get softer and softer as the chapter wears on. Look back at verse 10. First of all, he accuses them of being, of being spies. And they say, no, my Lord, we've come to buy food. Uh, we are honest men. Uh, we are all brothers. We're all sons of one man. So they, they start with, we're all brothers, sons of the same father. And then Joseph accuses them again of being servants. And look at verse 13. They said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers. Joseph, standing there testing them, they just counted him as a brother. They just treated him as one of them. Yes, Benjamin's at home. He's still with dad. And one is no more. Joseph, of course, knows that one is not no more. That one is not actually no more. Or I don't know how to say that right. You know what I mean. He knows that part's not true. They have no idea. But in that moment, in that statement, the brother they were about to kill, that they sold as a slave to their cousins was just counted not dead yet. One is no more. They assumed he was dead. They assumed he was gone, never to be heard from again. But he's treated, he's counted among their number. We're twelve brothers. Twelve sons of one man. That's why Joseph turns again and weeps. They just called me one of their brothers. It seems that their consciences have been pricked. Their hearts are getting just softer. You know, before, in chapter 37, they um, saw him, they're out in the fields, and, and Dad has sent him to go and check on them to make sure they're not up to no good. Again, there are too many negatives in that sentence. Um, and, and as he's coming with his big fancy coat on, they said, here comes that little dreamer. So that was, that was the nicest thing they could say uh, to him. 
The, the nicest thing they could call him was the, the, that dreaming boy. Here comes that, that little dreamer. And now here in chapter 42, 20 years later, the first time he's seen his brothers in those 20 years, he's one of them. He just got included in their number. Their hearts are getting softer. Their consciences are pricked. Then there's the conversation, verses 21 and 22, between those ten brothers. They, of course, have no idea that Joseph understands them. They have no idea that Joseph speaks Hebrew. So as they're having this conversation, they think that it's a private conversation among the ten of them. And they admit their guilt. In truth, we're guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Do you remember what happened back in chapter 37? They threw him in a pit. They initially grabbed him, took his coat from him, and threw him in a pit while they decided what to do. Do we kill him? Do we let somebody else kill him? Here come some slave traders. Why don't we sell him to them? While they're debating what to do, and it says they actually sat down to eat. And while they were eating, Joseph is in the pit pleading for his life. Because right here they said, you know, when he was in that pit, when he was begging that we would have mercy on him, we turned a deaf ear. We wouldn't listen. We would have nothing to do with him. We are guilty. Not only have they counted him among their brothers, but now they've just admitted we are guilty of what happened to him. His life is on our hands. He pleaded for safety, for deliverance, for mercy, and we didn't listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And then he hears Reuben I defended him. I told y'all. I told you I was going to get him home safely. I told you. And you didn't listen. Notice. As their conscience is pricked yet more. They're traveling home. There's an interesting statement in this chapter. There's an interesting uh, occurrence of a word in this chapter. So far, there's been only one mention of God. In the first 25 verses, there's only one mention of God and it comes from the brothers think the pagan governor of Egypt. It's fair. I mean, it's it's Joseph who mentions God. I'm a, I fear God. But it's not until they're on the way home and they discover uh, that one of them opens up his sack to feed his animals and they discover that there is uh, food in... I mean, there's, the money is still in his, uh, in his sack. And then in verse 28... At this their hearts failed them. They turned trembling to one another saying, What has God done to us? 
the fact that their money is still there makes them tremble in fear. Only now does God get mentioned by these brothers. Only when their guilt weighs that heavily on them, they're convinced that God is now out to get them. And finally, finally, finally they admit that God is at work here. God is, is, is working through this situation. You know, there's something about a guilty conscience. You know this. You've experienced this. When you're guilty and you don't know who knows what, everything is bad about you. When you're guilty and you don't know who knows what, you think it's possible people know. And when we get up from church this morning and you're standing in your spot and you notice across the room two people whispering to each other, what's the thought in your head? They're talking about me. I know they are. They keep looking over this way. They might be looking at the person in front of you. They might be looking at the person behind you. But your guilty conscience makes everything about you. When, when your guilt weighs heavily on you, when there's some secret sin in your life and you, you think word has gotten out, you're convinced that everyone knows and you're always looking over your shoulder that people are just out to get you. Matthew Henry in his commentary said, guilty consciences are apt to make good providences in a bad sense. In other words, when good things, if you're guilty, if your conscience feels guilty, if you're bearing that guilt in your conscience, even when good things happen to you, you take it bad. A guilty conscience takes even good providences as a bad thing. Might it be that Joseph just wanted to bless these travelers with free food? Isn't it, isn't it at all possible that he didn't make them pay for the food because he just felt like being generous that day? That's not possible in their minds. The guilt weighs on their shoulders. Yes, Joseph is testing his brothers, but he's also providing for them abundantly. A clean conscience takes these gifts with the recognition that God's providence and loving care, His kindness is on them and that Joseph is just being a kind leader, a kind ruler. But only now are their hearts recognizing the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Recognizing God's sovereignty and rule over things. God's power and authority over things. They're just now admitting that God is at work. They're just now coming to recognize the fear of God in their lives. This is a 20-year-old guilty conscience. This is 20 years they've been carrying this around. 20 years. It's long enough that you would think, you know, water under the bridge, bygones be bygones, not a big deal anymore. Surely people have forgotten about it. We don't need to mention it. It's, it's under control. There's no reason to bring it up. I mean, there's every excuse in the world to think nobody knows anything about this. It was 20 years ago. 
And yet, here it is weighing heavily on their hearts. Guilt is an interesting tool in God's hand. You know, there's no statute of limitations on guilt. There's no statute of limitations on on repentance and restoration. There's no statute of limitations on on restoring relationships. There's no statute of limitations. It doesn't run out. You know, you 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 can steal from people. You can have a wreck, and if nobody says a word for a few years, boom, it's gone. It's under the it's it's as if it never happened. We have our laws in the state, in the city, in the nation. They have the statute of limitations. They run out at some point. Believer in Jesus Christ, there's no statute of limitations on repentance and restoration. Let me make two applications from this passage. First, this is going to sound weird. Pray for the grace of a guilty conscience. Pray for the grace of a guilty conscience. If you really are guilty. Now, some of you walk around with guilty consciences and for no reason whatsoever. Right? There's no right or wrong. Pray for the grace of a guilty conscience. If you're guilty, that sense of guilt is God's grace in your life that you might seek to repent and be restored. You can't forsake sin that isn't gnawing at you. You can't mortify sin. You can't drive a knife in the heart of a sin that you don't even notice. If it weighs on your guilty conscience... It's all the more there. It's ready. It's right there, ready for you by God's grace to drive a stake in its heart. You can't mortify sin you don't hate that you aren't even aware of. Pray for the grace of a guilty conscience. It's there not to oppress you, but to sanctify you. And second, right on the heels of that, You know there's a place for guilt, right? I want you to see something real quick. I want you to watch something unfold. At the end of this chapter, we didn't read this far. But at the end of chapter 42, their provisions run out. The stuff they they bought or brought back from Egypt, um, the provisions run out at some point. Um... Jacob is all worked up because now he's lost another son. Um, And because Simeon is is left back um, in Egypt and uh, he's all worked up about it. And he's he wants them to go back and get food, but we can't we can't do that. Notice what Reuben says, verse 37. Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. Meaning, if Benjamin doesn't come back safely, when we go back to get Simeon and to, to get more stuff and, and, and recover our brother and show this, this Egyptian governor that Benjamin is here and fine, if I don't bring Benjamin back home safely to you, you can kill my two sons. And Jacob essentially ignores the request. 
They don't go. They stay. And in the beginning of chapter 43, they run out of provisions and it's time to go back. And he says, y'all need to go back and get more food. And they said, we're not going. If we can't take Benjamin, that man said, if we don't come back with Benjamin, don't come back. So we're not going. If, if you won't let us take Benjamin, we're not going to go. But notice verse 9 of chapter 43. Judah. You remember Judah, right? He's the fourth born son. He's got a son by his daughter-in-law when she pretended to be a prostitute. He's a stand-up kind of guy, in other words. Thank you for recognizing. Verse 9. Um, verse 8. Judas, well, verse 9. I will be a pledge for Benjamin's safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let, the, let me bear the blame forever. Do you see it? You know, there's a place for guilt. The lesser Judah, the first Judah, just offered himself as a surety for his brother's deliverance. The greater Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the second Judah, has offered himself as a surety for your, a down payment, a guarantee. We just sang it. A few minutes ago, before the throne, my surety stands. He has gone to the Father and said, let them go. Let them be free. I'm bearing the guilt. I'm bearing the blame. I'm bearing the punishment for their sin. Just as the lesser Judah looked at his father and said, let me bear the blame if he doesn't come back. Christ stands before the Father and says, I bear the blame for his sin because he trusts in me. There's a place for you to go with your guilt. You don't carry it around on your back and let it weigh on you. You run to the cross of Christ. You throw it at His feet and say, you paid for this. You suffered and died and bled and endured all the shame, all the guilt in my place. You stand before the throne as my surety, as my guarantee. You run to the cross. That's where your guilt has been dealt with. Pray for the grace of guilt, of a guilty conscience. But let that guilty conscience and that grace drive you to the cross where you can drop it at Christ's feet. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and mercy and grace shown to us in Christ. Your only son given who looked at you and said, send me, I'll bear the blame for their deliverance, for their safekeeping, for bringing them back home to you safe and sound. Father, would you give us the grace of a guilty conscience that drives us back to the cross, that drives us to hate our sin and to love Christ all the more and remind us that our surety stands before You pleading our case. Our hope 
is in the blood and righteousness of Christ and Him alone. And not in ourselves. And we thank You for it in Christ's name. Amen.